0: I came across a uh, kind of funny article uh, this week asking, uh, are you ready uh, for children? Uh, kind of pointed at people that are considering whether or not uh, they should have kids. And they said, there's several kind of tests you can do. Uh, the first one is the mess test, which is smear peanut butter on the sofa and curtains. Now rub your hands in a wet flower bed and rub them on, wall, on the walls. Cover all of those stains with crayons. Place a fish stick behind the couch and leave it there all summer. All right? Uh, There's the toy test, and this is near and dear to my heart, but obtain a 55-gallon box of Legos. If Legos are not available, you may substitute roofing tacks or broken bottles. Have a friend spread them all over the house, put on a blindfold, try to walk to the bathroom and the kitchen. Do not scream. Screaming could wake the child at night. Um, The grocery uh, store test, which is borrow one or two small animals. Goats are the best and take them with you as you shop at the grocery store. Always keep them in sight and pay for anything they eat or damage. Uh, the feeding test, obtain a large plastic milk jug, fill it halfway with water, suspend it from the ceiling uh, with, a, with a cord and start the jug swinging. Try to insert spoonfuls of soggy cereal such as Fruit Loops or Cheerios into the mouth of the jug while pretending to be an airplane. Now dump the contents of the jug onto the floor. And the final assignment is find a couple who already has a small child. Lecture them on how they can improve their discipline, patience, tolerance, toilet training, and child's table manners. Suggest all the many ways they can improve. Emphasize uh, to them that they should never allow their children to run a uh, riot and enjoy this experience. It will be the last time you have all the answers, right? And this is a story uh, today uh, that Uh, is going to raise a lot of questions and may not provide all of the answers. And I think after you've decided to have kids, the the way this story becomes relevant is I think one of the tests of parenting once you've had kids is when your kids question your love. Right, And you always remember when it happens the first time that it will be during uh, discipline or judgment or, or something like that. And they'll say something like, why do you hate me? Why don't you love me? And it's hard to hear that. And you know that as they get older, they will eventually see all the ways that you love them, but, but it's hard. And here's what you know. You understand that your discipline is not divorced from your love. Uh, they're, they're not divorced from each other. As a matter of fact, they're closely inter- intertwined that you are inflicting hardship or pain on them uh, in part because of your loving nature, not in conflict with it. You love them and don't want them to behave this way or you love the person that they are behaving poorly toward and your sense of justice must step in. Here's the other thing you know. The other thing you know when you're disciplining your kids is that your grace is readily available to them. Your grace is readily available to them. And so the minute they repent The minute they turn uh, from their misbehavior, the story begins to change and your grace begins to emerge. And we do this on a theological level. We see stories like the one we're going to study today. We're going to study the story of Sodom and Gomorrah today. Uh, And regardless of your time in church, you've heard this story, uh, how long you've been in church. If it's your first Sunday or uh, your 500th Sunday, you've you've heard this story. And we read this story and our immediate reaction is usually, how on earth could God do that? destroy these two cities. I thought he he was love. As a matter of fact, this is the story. When you have a conversation with someone about the goodness of God and the grace of God, this is the story that they will often point to, uh, to to question his goodness, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's just kind of do a little background and then we'll jump into the text. All right, remember that God had called Abraham uh, to leave his country, his people, and his father's household. And with that call came certain promises that God was gonna bless him and make his name great and he'd be a blessing to the entire world. And Abraham left and he followed the Lord's command, but he did take Lot with him. Uh, he brings Lot along and Lot, it's just kind of a disaster. And after um, a little bit of disaster, they decide they're going to part company. And so Abraham, in his generosity, he allows Lot to decide which way he's going to go. And if you remember the last time we heard from Lot, Lot said, oh, I think I'll take uh, the region by Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where I'm, I'm going to go. And that's where I'm going to kind of pitch my tent. And um, these cities, as, as time unfolded, especially these cities became uh, known as corrupt and sinful, and predatory, and Lot ends up living right in the midst of all this. And let me show you what happens in the text. So when the men got up to leave, these were the uh, three messengers of God that we studied last week. Uh, They looked down towards Sodom, uh, and Abraham walked uh, walked along with them to see them on their way. And then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that uh, he will direct uh, the child, uh, his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he promised him. So again here, we've seen this a dozen times or so, uh, the promise is reiterated right, that Abraham's going to be a great nation. He's going to be a blessing to the entire world. And then in verse 20, uh, then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham uh, remained standing before the Lord. And then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And then Abraham spoke up again, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, although I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous people is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five people? If I find 45 people there, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him, what if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, all right, God, may you not be angry, but let me speak what if only 30 are found there? He answered, I will not do it if, there, if I find 30 there, 30 there. And Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20? For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, May God, don't be angry with me, but let me uh, speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And he said, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Now, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the ensuing destruction that takes place in the next chapter, uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is often seen as a story of God's judgment. And I think a lot of that is fair, but I think this could also be seen as a story of God's patience. Right? You see it all throughout this story, but a lot had been settled into Sodom and Gomorrah for, honestly, a couple of decades And God has been watching this decline happen. He's been watching the evil happen. He's been watching a failure to adjust and repent and make things right. And we just don't know how many opportunities, how many people he sent in, how many ways that he drew them to himself. We have no idea how often God did that, but you have to believe that happened some. You see his patience in this kind of almost humorous bargaining between he and Abraham, that will you destroy the righteous and the wicked together for 45, right on down to 10. And each time God says, no, for that amount of people, I would save it, even for the sake of 10. And in the next chapter, here's what we learn. There is not 10 righteous people in all of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let that sink in just for a minute. There are not 10 righteous people in those whole cities. So God destroys them. And listen, God has the power and God has the authority to do this. You don't. I don't. This is a story of God's response to sin, not our response to sin. And so God has, we're gonna talk about this more as the sermon unfolds, but God has the power, the ability, and the authority. Now, all that being said, it's still hard to read in the next chapter, verse 23. By the time Lot reaches Zohar, so there's this kind of, God allows uh, Lot to be saved Uh, And there's this kind of rescue mission of Lot, but by the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land, and then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens, and then he overthrew these cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities, and also all the vegetation of the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. So, I think we learn a couple things in this, uh, in, in this passage about God and about sin and about his response to sin, and we'll just kind of walk through them one by one. Uh, they, they're kind of disjointed, but I just, I want to hit on all of them because I think they're all important. First of all, we learn how serious sin is to God. We've talked about this a lot before in this church, but we tend to underestimate our own sinfulness and we tend to underestimate God's holiness, and it's a bad combination God's feelings about sin, you can't understand his feelings about sin without understanding his holiness. God is completely holy. He is completely other. He is not, like I'm gonna bring in some human illustrations as we work through this, but they they fall way short because he is completely holy, completely other, completely righteous, and listen, he must respond. He must respond to sin. Otherwise, he is not as holy as we thought that he was. Now listen, here's the thing. Paul in the book of Romans will teach us that sin is the problem, not God's holiness, right? God's holiness is not the problem in this story. Sin is the problem in this story. He will say in the book of Romans that the cost or the wages of sin is death, physical and spiritual. Sin kills every single thing that it touches. So I find it interesting that we read a story like this and we get mad at God for his holiness instead of getting mad at sin for its destruction. Sin is ruling the day in these cities. People are hurting each other. They're destroying each other. And God, in his holiness, decides to do something about it. And he becomes the bad guy of the story. We we tend to read this story and we say, how can he? And I think the better question to ask is, how can humanity? How has Sodom and Gomorrah gotten into this place where there are not 10 righteous people in the city? That there has been such a decline And there has been such a wickedness and such a propensity to hurting each other that God responds and we sometimes make his holiness the enemy when in reality, sin is the enemy. Secondly, I think we think that God's goodness and justice about sin are divorced from each other and they're just not. Let me prove it to you. If I walked outside of church today, I'm usually one of the last ones to leave, but if I walked outside of church today and I saw one of our senior saints all right, one of, our, one of our older people that is just beloved by this congregation. And I walked out and I saw them being beaten in our parking lot. All right. I saw them being beaten. I said to myself, huh, interesting. And I got in my car and I left. Would you say I was good? No. No, and you shouldn't. Was that a good decision? No, you would expect my goodness to be tied to my sense of justice. That in some way, even as a sinful human being, that I would get involved or call the police or I would intervene in some way. God's goodness and sense of justice are not enemies. They are friends. They work together. He reacts to sin in this story because he's holy and because he's good. Now listen. Right now, we are in this age that we talk about sometimes around here. Right now, we are in this age called grace. We're in this age uh, uh, called grace where everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And let me reiterate that. Every person... I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you've done it with. Every single person who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but make no mistake about it. There will come a time where that age closes and there is a time of judgment where Jesus will return with fire in his eyes and a sword in his mouth, and he will be the judge of all things. And listen, on that day when he comes and that scene will not unfold that differently than Sodom and Gomorrah. On that day, we want to be ready. And on that day, we want the people around us to be ready. And that leads me to the third thing. Intercession is important. You see this with Abraham. When he sees the wickedness of the cities, what does he do? Does he celebrate? Does he throw a party? Does he say, go get him, God? No, no. He intercedes for those in Sodom and Gomorrah that, have not, that are, are not righteous, that are doing evil deeds, that are on a downward path, and he intercedes on their behalf. My heart breaks. It really does. Every time I see a Christian in social media or every time I see a Christian around me that seems to be rooting for judgment, we don't root for judgment. We root for repentance. Repentance. And so when you, if you don't like the way things are going in our culture and you see a downward slide and you see evil winning the day, you know what you are called to do? Intercede, pray, root for righteousness, root for repentance, root for people to come back to God. It is important. And the last thing that we're, we're gonna, the sermon's not almost over, right? We got a ways to go, but this is where we're gonna land for a good while because I wanna make this point super clear. The other thing we learned in this story is that God is moved by righteousness. God is not looking to randomly destroy these cities. He would be moved by the righteousness of even a few people. He gets down to 10. He gets down to 10 people. And he says, for the sake of these 10, I will spare the whole city. Let me put this on the screen for you. God will respond to the righteous with his mercy. Never, ever forget this, all right? And we're gonna see how this plays out in the rest of the Bible in a minute. God will respond to the righteous with his mercy. Now, here's what's interesting about this story, all right? And I really need you to, if you've tuned out, I need you to come back in, all right? Because this is really rich. Lot is saved, all right? So Lot is saved. We know that there weren't 10 righteous people, but we know that Lot is saved. Let me ask you a question. Based upon what was Lot saved? Lot saved. All right, based upon what was Lot saved. Was it his righteousness? Was it his goodness? Was it he was different from all of his neighbors? Upon what, what was the basis of God allowing Lot to be saved? Well, the text actually tells us. It says, early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace, Here it is, verse 29. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered who? He remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. At the end of the day, Lot was saved because of Abraham. It was Abraham's relationship with God, his unique relationship with God. It was Abraham's relationship with God. You could make an argument. It was Abraham's righteousness. It was Abraham's kind of unique standing with God that allowed Lot to be saved. And isn't that amazing to think about that now as the story has unfolded we saw all this bartering with God, that now because of one, it comes down to not 40 or 50 or 10 or whatever, because of one, Because of one person, another person could be saved. Now, I think we end up asking the wrong question. We read a story like this and we say, all right, is God righteous? And you know what I believe? If you've attended church for any length of time at all, here's what I believe. Um, I think that in our heart of hearts, we know uh, the answer to that is yes, God is righteous. And that yes, it's okay for him to do that. I think in our heart of hearts, as human beings, when we think about a holy, righteous, and perfect God, that that we kind of, when we read a story like this, in our heart of hearts, we say, he's God. He's holy. He's the judge of heaven and earth. He gives life, and he is free to take life. I think in our heart of hearts, when we read this story, if we're honest, in our heart of hearts, we know that he's God. I think what we're really asking is a different question the question we're asking isn't, is God good? The question we're really asking is, am I good? If God responds to the righteous with mercy, am I righteous enough? Am I holy enough? Am I good enough? Will God respond to my righteousness with mercy? Will I receive his mercy and his grace in this life and then the next? And we know this is the most important question of this text. It's not, is God good? We know he is. In our heart of hearts, we know he's able to do this. We know he has the authority. We we know God is good, I, I think. I think the question of this text is, am I good? Are God and I okay? And I'll tell you why I think this is the most important question. I think our culture is fighting this question every single day. That we are so mad at each other and we are so angry at each other because we are trying to prove to ourselves and to others and to God that we are righteous. That at a minimum, I'm more righteous than you. Right? At a minimum, I'm better than you. We are trying to prove that on a daily basis. This is the source of our angst. This is the source of our animosity. It's trying to settle our hearts and our minds that I'm good enough. I'm righteous enough. I'm holy enough. And God will respond to me with his mercy. I think this whole culture is trying to prove that right now and the only tiny, itty-bitty little problem with it is the book of Romans. Here's what Paul says. As it is written, there is no one righteous. I did an extensive Greek study on that phrase and it literally means no one. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've altogether become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Welcome to Northwest. It's not that you are sinful in comparison to other people. You may be fairly righteous compared to your neighbors. Lot, as a matter of fact, in Second Peter, Lot, Peter really threw a monkey wrench into the sermon right because peter actually does declare that righteous that lot is righteous in comparison to the people around you so it's not that you're not righteous at all it's that compared to a holy god you're sinful compared to a holy god you are sinful and i am sinful and he must deal with sin and he responds to righteousness will he respond to yours will he respond to mine with mercy and if you're feeling tense and you're feeling angst-ridden and you're unsure, can I give you the gospel, the good news? We actually see the story of Sodom and Gomorrah play out in the New Testament. We see a world, when when Jesus happens down to the scene, we see a world that has been affected by sin. People are being hurt. They are hurting each other. You could definitely declare that there is no one righteous, no, not one. And the question as we enter the New Testament is, will God destroy it all? Like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah, will God destroy it all? And God, in his infinite mercy, he looks down and he says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. So I will send my son, Jesus, and he will become the one. My son, Jesus, will become the one that is righteous. And in this story, Jesus becomes Abraham and we become Lot. We become the the ones that are not fully righteous, the ones that are sinful, who have been saved and rescued by the one who is righteous. We are Lot in the story. And so, if we will let him, this one that became the righteousness of God here on earth, this one will forgive your sin. All of it, he will. This one, through faith, will lead us to a better life in this life and the next. And let me tell you what the gospel says the gospel says that through faith, God responds to the righteousness of Jesus. All right? Here's the gospel that God responds to the righteousness of Jesus with mercy for me and mercy for you. And this is good news. This is great news. It is the gospel that God does respond to, the, to righteousness with mercy. He responds to the righteousness of Christ because there is no one in this world that is righteous. No, not one. So he became the one and through faith, God says, I will respond to his righteousness with mercy for you and mercy for me. So we are not arrogant. Why on earth would we be arrogant? We are not self-righteous. Why would we we be self-righteous? It's the righteousness of Christ. He is everything. And we are not afraid. We are not afraid of the return of Christ. We are not afraid of the judgment that he brings as we stand before him. We know that the righteousness of Christ is enough. That I am not standing before him on the basis of my own righteousness through faith. God is responding to me with mercy because of the righteousness of Jesus. And so we are not afraid. And so while this story can be jarring, and it is, to see God behave in this way, even though I think we know that God has the right to do it. He has the power, he has the authority, he has the holiness to do it. While we know that is true, it is jarring to read but you need to know that the gospel is in this text. And God says, no, I haven't changed my nature. I am still responding to the righteous with mercy. It's just different now. Through faith, I'm responding to the righteousness of Christ with mercy for you. Let's celebrate that moment together. We're gonna receive communion together. And it is our opportunity to celebrate this truth that Jesus looked down and he saw that there was no one righteous, no, not one. And he turned to the father and said, I'll become the one. Let me be the one. Let me be the one righteous so that through faith, you can respond to the world with mercy. And we want to celebrate that right now. So what I want to do is I want to open this up with prayer and leave a little bit of time for you to thank Jesus for what he's done for you and for me. And to thank him and then I'll come back after that prayer and we'll receive it together as a church family. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your actions on the cross. And God, we thank you for the gospel. That because of the righteousness of one, we get to receive mercy. We are grateful. And right now we want to express that gratitude to you. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The one's body was given for you that you might receive mercy. Let's receive it together. His blood was poured out that you might receive mercy. And again, this truth changes everything. We're not arrogant, we're not self-righteous, we're not afraid. It changes everything in this life and the next. And I promise you, I promise you to those listening at home, if you will allow Jesus to be that one for you, he will forgive your sin. He will lead you to a better place than Sodom and Gomorrah. He will lead you to a better place and he will give you new life all through his grace. It is in his name that that all these things happen. Amen. God bless you guys, have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.